Hey, it's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak with artists about creating works of nonfiction. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. And you know who one of my favorite fictional characters is? Riff Van Winkle. My wife has been rolling her eyes nonstop as I workshop my riff jokes. And no, she doesn't subscribe to the podcast. Make of that what you will. Can I ask you to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts? Share this with a friend. Share this on your social networks and help a brother out. Done begging. On to the show. Okay, so I've been pouring and pouring and pouring over Jessica Abel's Out on the Wire, the storytelling secrets of the new masters of radio. And I am deeply inspired to tell more stories you find, like on This American Life. It won't be on this podcast, but likely a different one with an Oregonian regional slant. More on that another time. A big, big takeaway from Out on the Wire is when Ira Glass, host and co-founder of This American Life, goes out and records all his tape. He and producers like him then take all that tape and log it. It's a loose transcription, but the idea being that you're getting a rough look at the whole of your tape so that you may condense, say, a 12-hour recording down to 20 minutes. No kidding. In light of that, I had a couple guests bail on me this week, so I figured I'd apply this editing rule to one of my longer podcasts, specifically my episode with Roy Peter Clark. It's rich at just under two hours, but what if I could really boil out the water from the sap and leave you with a concentrated dose of grade A dark amber maple syrup? That's what I've done here. A Roy Peter Clark redux with a little bit of narration, but mainly the parts of the conversation that most appeal to my taste. Roy had a sequence of mentors growing up and throughout high school and his other developmental schools. His mother, Franciscan priests, editors, professors, and colleagues. Too many to mention, but so many helped guide his way through the language, and that all started before he had formed his first memory. I just happened to have this little... I wasn't planning this, but I'm, I just, I'm reaching out right now, and I happened to have it. Uh, nearby and it's a really precious family document and it's what used to be called a baby book Mm. and so three days after I was born a family that knew my family gave my mom and dad gave my mom this this baby book and what it is is a little velveteen covered keepsake in which you, in which a mom will write things and keep things. And so there are photographs. This actually, I'm looking at a little lock of my hair, which is (laughs) kind of scary. I wish I still had it. Um, It has things about um, my first words, first little picture that I drew. It's quite a little treasure chest. There's this particular place that 
makes me laugh every time I, I read it. It says mother's notes, and it says age 16 months, right? So 16 months. I'm a mathematician, so I know that's one year, four months, right? Mm-hmm. So my mom writes, Roy is at the talk of the neighborhood. He can speak more than any child his age. He can sing every other word of Seesaw, Jack and Jill, and I'm looking over a four-leaf clover. Hmm. Besides a wonderful vocabulary, mimics everything and everybody, okay? Then it says age 24 months, so I'm a, now I'm a, I'm a terrible two, a two-year-old. The fact that I haven't written anything for eight months should speak for itself. Roy <laughs> is, is a real boy, and all of my time is spent running around after him. He can recite the entire alphabet, can read the letters A, E, F, W, M, and L. Not bad, huh? Still sings all day long. So look, I cannot even, this is before, this is a time before my memory exists, right? I mean, I don't have any, any capacity yet. My brain hasn't evolved to the point where I can remember what I was doing at age one or two. And they're imprinted as a result of nature or nurture is a love for language and a love for music. And I, I play music in almost every workshop, a writing workshop that I do. Mm. So it's really funny and eerie and a little humbling to know that because of the way that you came in the world, that your life with language was somehow determined. So as a result of all those things, I wound up and still am living a life of language. Once again, not just that I have this capacity, but that I have this passion. The world would be better if more people could find a way to make that step, to make that leap, to cross the bridge from having language in you to having the ability to kind of swim around and play around inside the language. Which, of course, leads to the question of literacy and what that really means. Think about it. It's not just reading. It's, well, here's Roy again. There was a teacher at, um, at Stanford who came to the Pointer Institute one time for a program. I worked with her in a couple of projects. But she asked me a question. It was very formative. She said to me, what does it mean to be literate in America? Hmm. Really? Okay, I don't know. I'm not, what do you mean? Hmm. Yeah, like, well, who are the most literate people in America? I, I said some smart-ass thing, like, like, surely, like you and me? No, <laughs> no, I said, no, famous people. And I just blurted out a couple of names. I said, I don't know, um, Susan Sontag and William F. Buckley Jr., and I, I realized that after I, that I couldn't, in many ways, I could not have chosen two more different individuals, man, woman, liberal, progressive, left, very conservative, on the right. She, she kind of, like, why have you mentioned these two people? I said, well, I'm not sure. She says, okay, what did they do? that 
makes you want to call them literate. So she, she did this Socratic kind of questioning of me. And she told me, I said, look, they, there are these behaviors. And if you practice these behaviors, it marks you as literate. And what are they? Well, um, the first two are very, I think, are obvious. If you're literate, you read. And you read in certain ways. And if you're literate, you write. And you write in certain kinds of ways. But it's that third element that I think people underestimate or fail to see. And that is that if you are a literate person, you have the capacity to talk about how meaning is created through reading and writing. Hmm. So it's not just a matter of, of reading and writing. That would be good enough. That's two-thirds of the way to there. But as you grow as a reader and as a writer, you gain the capacity to talk about how reading and writing works. After graduation from Providence College, Roy soon went to Stony Brook for his Ph.D. He thought he'd spend a career teaching Chaucer and Shakespeare and medieval literature. After applying to 100 schools by typing up 100 letters, this is the era of typewriters, he received four invitations for interviews. The only job he got was in Montgomery, Alabama, with a branch campus of Auburn University, where he taught but also met a series of editors and journalists. From that point, he began coaching writers in St. Petersburg, Florida, at the Pointer Institute. He's been working with writers and reporters ever since. What questions were, were writers asking of you then? And, and over the course of your career, too, what, what questions do you most often field from from writers looking to, even novice writers, or just anyone looking to improve? Like, what, you know, even like 40 years ago, what were you hearing? And then, you know, what were you hearing, you know, going forward in the ensuing decades? Yeah, you know, um, the Pointer Institute republished the first essay I wrote about my experience in the newsroom. So six months into my experience, I, I wrote a, uh, oh, a couple of thousand words, as I recall, for the Bulletin of the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And what was really interesting is how my description of the problem, as I first saw it, has kind of retained its, uh, retained its uh, what would you call it, its viability or its, uh, its significance. Yeah, and its relevance, for sure. Its relevance. Yeah. And... Um, so it was just things like, it was things that were clarified for me by meeting another writing coach who was about my father's age, who came from the World War II generation. His name was Donald Murray. And after, the, after Patterson hired me, Tom Winship, who was the editor of the Boston Globe, hired Donald Murray to be a writing coach at the Globe. And Murray had actually won a Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing in his 20s. He was a very young man Wow! at the time. And um, Murray 
went on to be a very influential writing composition teacher and, and sort of writing theorist, if you will, practical theorist. So he became a kind of a papal figure for English teachers at, at, at every level. And he came to Pointer and he, um, he worked with me. He articulated some of these issues in ways that, that um, I couldn't quite see at first. So for example, I'm about to echo Murray, saying mm-hmm. that, you know, to the struggling writer, like good writing looks like magic, but it's not magic. It's a set of rational steps. You can learn the steps. You can learn the names of the steps. Um, well, what's an example of a step? Well, every piece of writing needs a focus, a central idea, an organizing principle, a nut, a kernel of truth or emotion or feeling, an idea. And all the other parts of the, the work that you've written reinforce that in some way. And you could be writing a poem or a college dissertation And ultimately, you're still responsible for figuring out what this piece of writing is really about. Just that construct alone allows you as a writer or as a writing coach or as a teacher of writing or as an editor to kind of figure out what's happening when a piece of writing really works and what's happening when a piece of writing is in trouble. Now, I just talked about this in terms of a piece of writing, but that writing is produced by a human being, and the writer or teacher's responsibility is not just to perform autopsies on a cadaver, you know, to fix a a broken story. It's to work with a human being, a, a creative human being, in order to help improve their craft, their techniques, to sharpen their strategies, to become a better reader, writer, and a better talker about reading and writing so that you can step into the, the pathway of someone who learns something new about the craft every day. Yeah, and so much of your, of your book writing over the years... The fact that you wrote five books in ten years on the craft of writing just blows my mind every time I think about it. Uh, <laughs> you you Me really, too. Yeah, Me too. It, it must. It's a what a what a feat of generation, and not only just generation of uh, of material, but of just such valuable valuable work to to writers and readers alike. It's you've stripped down the the artifice, like you said, like you showed. It does feel like magic to someone who doesn't know the the, the who, who hasn't been trained to see the where the scaffolding was bolted into the side of the building, and like so yeah, much right. yeah so it's like what you, what you've done is you've stripped a lot of that away to show like yes this is very much attainable if you're willing to do the work. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and I think um, here's more here's more Donald Murray. Remember, Roy. <laughs> A page a day equals a book a year. Yeah, what is that? Well, it's a kind of an, it's an aphorism, right, about writing. It's this kind of like little Zen-like saying. But it has practical implications. 
and it has uh, psychological and emotional implications. So why is it that so many people who finish their PhD coursework and even their exams never get their degrees because somehow they lack the capacity to write the dissertation. Mm. And I think I could have had another career just coaching people on their dissertations so they could get their degrees. Because I think it is, I think that people are paralyzed. I think they're, they're paralyzed by their, their fear of, you know, the marathon. Uh, of the ideas that, oh my God, uh, now I'm going to have, how am I going to produce something that has this 300 pages or whatever? You know, I can barely, I can barely write a term paper. Yeah. It's the bird by bird process. Exactly right. And in fact, Don Fry, my, my dissertation director and became my colleague at Pointer, one of my best friends ever. He said, when I was getting ready to write my dissertation, he said, look, you can write a term paper, right? Yes. Okay. All right, here's what you're going to do over the next four or five, six months. You're going to write, you're going to write 10 term papers. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at him funny. He said, he said, do the math. (laughs) The other thing he, he, he did for me is he got me to, at first, he was a very good editor, but at first he got me to lower my standards, you know, not to wait until all the research was finished before I started drafting something, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the, the, um, to do some, the value of doing some exploratory writing. And, um, I didn't have all the vocabulary to understand what was happening there, but looking back, that was clearly the case. And I don't think my dissertation was very well written. Uh, but I was able to generate out of it. Uh, I remember also at the time when I was at Auburn, you know, uh, I think a half dozen journal articles, scholarly journals, uh, at a time when I thought I wanted to be a, um, uh, an English professor for life. I remember very vividly after my first experience with journalism is really sitting back and, and looking at the, 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 the different lifespans of uh, of a piece of writing as in journalism you could see something on television sparked your interest and you could write about it and people in america could be talking about it two three four days later and there's a whole different biorhythm which which sort of attracted me i have to say orwell was a an important figure because Orwell was a journalist, novelist, scholar, and Orwell wrote about politics and the English language. And language was central to works like 1984 and to all of his essays. I remember the first time I ever worked with a group of journalists before I went to St. Petersburg was through in Montgomery through Ray Jenkins, and it was a, a seminar for Southern editorial writers. And I remember exploring 
exploring, uh, sort of reading their editorials, looking at their use of language, looking at the distance between the language that was really fresh and the language that was really stale, talking about the relationship between language misuse and political corruption, essentially Orwell opened that door for me. Mm. So it was a good, and I've been, you know, faithful to him ever since. Now, writing about writing, it, you know, it, it's always going to draw a certain measure of attention to yourself. It's kind of like if you're a personal, personal trainer, you can't be fat. And it's, it's like, so if you're writing about writing, it's like you almost, you, the scrutiny is that much higher because you got to hold yourself to a higher, to the standard you're writing about and an even higher mm-hmm. standard because it's going to cause it, uh, uh, some people are going to look at your work a little with a heavier eye. And I, I wonder how, how you approach that degree of scrutiny given how much you've coached and how much you've written about writing over the years. It's what I call, uh, you used a good uh, good analogy. My version of that is the dentist with bad teeth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I come from a family where, where people have um, some chronic skin problems, you know, uh, over the years. A little, nothing dangerous, but a little. I remember going, for the, going to the dermatologist for the first time, and the door opened up and there was a woman who walked in. She was a young doctor. I don't think she, she probably in her, in her thirties. And I said to myself, I have picked like a really the best dermatologist in the world. This person of all of God's creatures has the most perfect skin I've ever seen. <laughs> And then I, I kind of, you know, she was, she was a fine doctor, but over the years I said, you know, maybe that wasn't right. Maybe it's the person who has the experience of struggling through something who can better identify with my circumstances. And so I think that about about uh, a week ago, just a few days ago, uh, I dangled a modifier in an essay I wrote about uh, Trump's definition of quotation marks. And there was a gleeful um, correction (laughs) by, uh, uh, especially since the sentence in which I was, the sentence I had written, had mentioned mentioned the fact that I had written a book on grammar. So, to make a grammar or a you know a usage mistake um, in a sentence where you're bragging about how good you are with language. So, but you know I got a, I got out ahead of it. I said I was going to leave the mistake up there for a couple of days. And, 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 you know, suffer the consequences. 
And I then admitted that I had done this on uh, Twitter. People thought it was it was funny. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what happened in a case like that is, although nowadays there's always going to be some there's always going to be some trolls, and there're going to be people who don't read your work very carefully and criticize it harshly. In general, if you have a reputation and a history of being a champion of writers, of identifying with the work of writers, their triumphs and their struggles. If you are always in the game, not just coming out of the hills after a battle and to shoot the wounded, <laughs> that people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt. It's like you earn the right to be, um, you earn the right to, to make mistakes. And if anybody, I don't hide these, but if anybody could come to my office and look at a 350 or 400 word manuscript that I've written and read the thousand or so marks that copy editors from Little Brown make on my manuscript. A lot of them are formatting issues or, or corrections, but yeah, there's, there's my, there's, there's, uh, my share of, um, redundancy and awkwardness and insensitivity and uh, lack of clarity. And so, um, yeah, I'm fortunate enough to have a team of people surrounding me, not just one team, but teams of people surrounding me, whose job it is to help me get my best work in print. And it's my mission to open the door for literacy and good writing wider and wider so that more and more people can imagine themselves as belonging to communities of writers, you know, nations of writers, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, because it's a team sport. mm -hmm, Yes. Well, it's not only that, but Let's say, you know, I think people are thinking about this right now in a a very harsh and contentious uh, political moment that we say things like we live in a democracy. We say things like we have freedom of expression. We talk about the history and the power of the First Amendment. And every day I walk into the the Pointer Institute, every, every day for more than three decades, the first, the last thing I see before I enter the building is this marble plaque with the first, the words of the First Amendment on it. So I'm reminded, like every day, that there is this ideal against which I should always judge my own work and help others towards the fulfillment of that ideal in their work. What good is freedom of expression if we lack 
the means to express ourselves. And that's my articulation of uh, a mission and purpose, both as a writer and a writing teacher. It's, uh, with with books on writing, I feel that writers of any of of any um, any degree of skill and novices, especially, that uh, it's it's all it's very easy to say like, oh, I'll start my project, whatever that is, you know, after I'm done reading this, and or mm-hmm. and then it's just it's a way of prog- uh, productive procrastination because you're actually you're learning very valuable insights, but you're not putting into the practice per se, and but you also need to be mindful of this is kind of a continuing ed- education thing, a sharpening of the saw, if you will. And I, I wonder how you balance that continuing ed portion of like writing about writing or reading about writing, and then also making sure that you sit down and, and do the work too. There are times when you don't have everything that you could have or all the material in the background that you need. Um, and it's not going to matter that much. Uh, I do believe in a kind of, in a, I believe in a form of over reporting, which to say that it's better for you to have done a little too much reporting than, than not enough. But that being said, if the effect of too much reporting is that you miss deadlines or you don't get to the work or you're not productive enough, then I think you have to reimagine your process and your craft. And all I'm saying is, if you do some research, come on back and sit down and write about it for a while. Just write about it for yourself. Send a message to yourself. Send a memo to yourself. Send a memo to a friendly a friendly reader, and learn what you need to learn in order to take the next step in the process. In most cases, you'll be shocked to discover you have enough for a paper, you have enough for an essay, you have enough for a book. And if you don't, if some test reader or copy editor thinks that you don't, this still time to get what you need. Yeah, it's easy to be crippled by and paralyzed by research, always thinking like you need just one more one more source. Like I got to go to one more source where primary or person mm-hmm. and it's going to round it out perfectly, but honestly it's like you'll always find an excuse to try to find one more person if you if you can, but it's like kind of like what you were saying earlier like writing before you're ready is also a good way to break that chain that of yep. of that information flood. Yeah. Yeah. I am just gonna paraphrase what you just said and I think it's true. Say put it this way, too often more research is an excuse for not writing. Okay, that is it, CNFers. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. It was produced by yours truly and uh, supported by you guys. The more you listen, the more it gives me juice to do this. So thank you very much for listening. And until next week, have a wonderful weekend, and thanks again for listening.